Go to the book of Genesis chapter 20. And you are there and I am not. This is the word of the Lord. We will be considering the entire chapter this morning. Now, Abraham journeyed there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he journeyed and then he sojourned, sorry, in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation, even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your, of your heart, you have done this. And I also have kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early the morning, in the morning, and called all his servants and told him them all these things that in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and all my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male servant and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife to Sarah and his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men who are cleared, all men you are cleared. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your inspired, infallible word. We ask that this morning, as we consider all of the details of chapter 20 that you would remind us lord that you are also god not just of grand promises but of the details that bring those grand promises to fulfillment we pray that you would give us ears to hear hearts to believe and minds that understand for the name of your son and for the good of your people we pray amen please be seated Brothers and sisters, we come now to the 20th chapter of the book of Genesis. For the past four weeks, we have, and I say this with all sincerity, we have painfully examined the righteous judgment of God upon the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah. And prayerfully, we have also been encouraged by the gracious salvation of God upon the righteous, that is, Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah. This morning, our attention is now being shifted from the terrible judgment that we saw in the 19th chapter 
And now our minds and attentions are being focused on the life of Abraham, the man of faith, the friend of God. And the scriptures transition from the narrative of destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of the double-minded man, Lot, back to the life of Abraham so that we might notice the stark contrast between these two men. There has been an intentional contrast between these two men, Lot and Abraham, ever since the 13th chapter of the book of Genesis. We have seen the humility of Abraham, who offers the best of his land to his nephew Lot. And we have seen the greed of Lot, who chooses the best of land for himself. We've seen the faith of Abraham who sets, who sets up his tent near the oaks of Mamre, where he worships the Lord and builds a, a, an altar as a pilgrim. While Lot sets up not a tent, but a home, living within the wicked city of Sodom. We then notice that the Lord God confirms, affirms his covenant promises with Abraham. As he visits him and shares a covenant meal with him. While the Lord God also visits Lot. But must rescue Lot. Because of Lot's own conflict in his own heart. Because Lot lingers. And Lot is unsure of where his true treasure really lies. And after all that we have read thus far. From the 13th chapter until where we are this morning. We may have concluded that. Abraham is the faithful believer and Lot is the unfaithful believer. If we could use that kind of terminology, unfaithful believer, we we might conclude that this is what the scriptures are intending to teach us. Follow Abraham. Don't follow Lot. But dear ones, that is not what the scriptures are intending to teach us this morning or at all for that matter. Rather, The scriptures are saying to us, do you see Lot? Do you see the fickle man who so often wrestles with the world, wrestles with the flesh, and so often wrestles with the devil? Do you see Lot? Abraham is no different. Abraham is no different. Or we could say it this way, Abraham is no better. Abraham, though he be a recipient of undeserved grace, was just as fickle as his double-minded nephew, just as sinful as his double-minded nephew. And we should bless God that God does not hide from us the details of Abraham's sin, but that God actually draws our attention to Abraham's sin so that we might know, as John Calvin says, the infirmity of man and the grace of almighty God. This morning, with God's help, we shall consider the entirety of the 20th chapter of the book of Genesis with two long points, just to give you a heads up, with two long points. Number one, Abraham's repeated offense. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1 states once more, Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned. In Gerar. Gerar will be eventually uh, Philistia, which will be the home of the Philistines. As we enter the beginning of the chapter, uh, we may be tempted to make sure that we are in the 20th chapter and not in the 12th chapter. For the Bible goes on to say, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Haven't we read this before? Isn't this a, a, a familiar scene? In, in our narrative, the incident that is, has taken place, the one that we are reminded of, listen to this, it has happened 25 years ago in our narrative. 25 years ago, what we read in chapter 13 or 12, Abraham committed the same exact sin, saying of Sarah, she is my sister rather than she is my wife. When Abraham was in Egypt, he commanded his sister saying, or Sarah, his wife saying, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. 
And the, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they will kill me. But they will let you live. So here is his proposal to his sister. Please, his wife, please say that you are my sister so that I may live on account of you. And you may remember or recall the debacle as result of Abraham's lack of faith in God, that God would be all that God promised that he would be, that God would be Abraham's shield, that God would bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. Abraham's lie resulted in the integrity of his wife almost being compromised and also a pagan king rebuking him for his sin. And now, here we are again. Virtually, all over again, Abraham has once again fallen into the same sin that he willingly fell into 25 years earlier. It was a profoundly embarrassing failure because this is the man who had received all of the glorious promises from God. This was the one to whom God had appeared And to whom God had autographed his own word onto Abraham's mind and memory. As he spoke to Abraham in unmistakable ways. It had not been years since Abraham heard the voice of God. It had only been weeks. Maybe days. Not months though. It could not have been months. In the 19th chapter, the Lord God came to Abraham, or the 18th chapter, the Lord God came to Abraham, shared a coveted meal with his friend, called his wife to faith, and declared that as the Lord surely lives, Abraham and Sarah would bear a son in in how much time? In one year's time. Keep that in your mind. This is the 18th chapter. In the very next day, chapter 19, Abraham witnessed the ascending smoke coming from the place where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood. It was like smoke, the Bible says, rising from a furnace. And Abraham became a witness to the righteousness and justice of God, which he was called to teach the generations thereafter. And all of these events have taken place, listen, days maybe weeks from this chapter 20. From chapter 18 to chapter 20, we only have days, maybe weeks, possibly a month, but not much more than that. Why is this important? Because we are learning that Abraham is not much different than Lot. Lot, who had been rescued from brimstone and fire, soon thereafter is caught in Doubting God's provision. He falls into the sin of drunkenness, not once, but twice. All that Lot had witnessed with his own eyes was not enough to keep him on the straight and narrow. And likewise, in spite of all the advantages that were given to Abraham, they were not enough to keep Abraham from falling into sin, not once, but twice. And we would, uh, we would wager to say not twice, but three times, and not three times, but four times, and more and more. What's the point? The point is this. Abraham is no better and no different than Lot. And my friends, any man who falls into a sin once is more than likely going to fall into that sin twice and three times and four times. Why? Because, dear brothers and sisters, At the end of the day, we are all serial sinners. We are all repeated offenders. Lot had doubted that the one who rescued him from certain death in Sodom was able to keep him from starving in the hills. And now we have Abraham. Doubting that the one who has promised to give him a son, make him into a great nation, that that one can protect him from potential threats in new lands. 
Did God not command Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, do not fear? And did God not promise to Abraham, I am a shield to you? The Lord God promised to be an ever-present defense for Abraham. That no matter what came upon Abraham, that Abraham could, could trust that he could hide behind God. And that no weapon formed against him would prosper. Abraham failed to believe what God had said before. And now Abraham is faced with the same test all over again. It, it was the same test. It was the same test with only one question. And it was a true and false answer. Do you believe God? Yes or no? One question. And Abraham failed the same question, the same test twice. And what was the reason that Abraham gave for his failure? He explains, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham feared that the king and the people of Gerar did not fear God. And Abraham will soon learn that they feared there was more fear in Gerar than there was fear in Abraham. Abraham refused at the moment of testing to place his hope in the one who had promised to uphold and undergird him through every trial and detail of life. He feared the king and the people more than he feared God. For he will go on to say, or he will say, as he said to himself in, in verse number 11, he says, because I thought to myself, why did Abraham fail? Why did Abraham fall? He says, because I thought to myself, because I said to myself, that may have gone over your head. Slow down and, and think, why did Abraham fall? Why did Abraham fail? He tells you in verse 11, because I thought. Because I said to myself. Isn't that wonderful? The man who has been so privileged to hear from God. While the rest of the world walks in darkness, this individual is being spoken to by God. This individual has, has had God come and visit him face to face to share a covenant meal with him. And when Abraham is faced with a test, rather than trusting in the one who has uniquely and unmistakably spoken and appeared to him, Abraham thinks to himself, let me think, what shall I do? Isn't that strange? Isn't that foolish? For when Abraham was faced with a test, he has not one thought of God in his mind. But he thinks to himself, how am I going to get myself out of this one? And to find the answer, Abraham does not think vertically. Abraham thinks horizontally. It was a lack of faith. Not in the big picture of God's promises, though. Listen to this. Abraham did believe that God would do all that he had promised. God would give him an heir. God would bless him and that nations would be coming through him. God would give him land. Abraham believed all of those big, big promises. So then what was Abraham's problem? Abraham's problem was not the giant step of faith to believe in the covenant promises of God, but rather the small steps of faith that it would take to arrive at seeing the promises of God fulfilled. It was in the what would seem like small details of Abraham's life that the faith of Abraham would constantly be tested. Big promise, leave your country and go to a place that I will show you. Abraham immediately obeys. What a giant step of faith. Now, Sarah, we must travel to Egypt because we need some food. And if anyone asks you, you're my sister because I don't want to die. What a small step to abandon your faith in God. 
Big promise, you will have land and nations will come from you. Small detail. I need some food today. I better lie. I better cheat. I better steal so that I can eat. Is God, the one who has made the grand promise, not able to provide for you today? Small things. Abraham believed in the massive promise that God would give him a son, an heir that would ultimately bless the nations. But it was in the details of everyday life that Abraham failed to trust God. Now, what about you? And what about me? We believe the great truth that God is sovereign, right? God is sovereign and that his hand is ordering all things. But how often do we commit the sin of fear and worry and doubt every single day over some of the most basic issues that take place in our lives as if his hand were not sovereignly over all things? I've lost my job. What will I do? Well, don't you believe that God is sovereign? Then why are you behaving like he is not? I am sick. I am not sure if I am going to live. Do you believe that even though you die, you shall live? Then why are you worried? Where is your faith? We believe in prayer to be one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. But how often do we, like Abraham, think to ourselves and rather than run to God in prayer, try to figure it out on our own and then ask God to clean up all the mess that we have made? We believe in evangelism, that we've been called to be salt and light in the world. And how many times have we failed to be faithful witnesses to those that God has specifically and strategically placed in our lives? Do you think the people that are in and around your lives are just there, happenstancely, by coincidence? You think those who are working in your job site... Those who you are encountering on a daily basis, as you are called to be salt and light, are there by chance? Or have they been placed there by God so that you might be a faithful witness? We believe in evangelism. But will you believe in evangelism even in the small encounters that you have on a daily basis? Will you believe in prayer even when you are faced with difficulties every single day? We trust that we are saved by Christ Saved by faith, and it is a giant step of faith to no credit of our own. But will you take the small steps of faith day by day, trusting that God will carry you into glory, even through the dark providences of life, when you are uncertain how secure the next step that you take will be? Will you trust Him? Will you trust God in the details of your life? Will you trust him again, even in the dark providences of life? Those moments where every step seems to be uncertain and where God appears to be most invisible. That when he is most invisible, that he is most present. Will you trust in faith that every step that you take, though it may seem small, will be upheld? And undergirded by God, who has promised to sustain you. Will you trust him not only with the big picture of life, but also with the seemingly small details of your life? In Abraham's lie, he revealed that he too was a man like you and I, who often wrestled with trusting God. That God will order and uphold every single one of our steps. The steps of a righteous man, they are ordered by the Lord. It would appear as though Abraham, though, had made a permanent deal with Sarah. That each time they moved into a new territory, they would, they would say, we're siblings. You've got the plan. You've got the plan. When we move here, we're still sticking with the plan. You're my brother. You're my sister. Therefore, they are both responsible for this sin. But who is more responsible? Abraham. Why was Abraham more responsible? Because Abraham was called to lead her. She was not called to lead him. 
So then it is no wonder that Abraham failed. Because Abraham was using a recipe for failure. Those of you who cook. A recipe of compromise. Uh, A recipe of compromise is a recipe of failure. When you use the ingredients, if you will, of, of compromise, it will fail. When you use the ingredients of lying and cheating and sinning, you will ultimately fail. Therefore, you should not be surprised when it all falls down. When it all falls down and we look at the path and all the things that we have included into our decisions and we are surprised by failure, we should slap ourselves in the face and say, well, of course you failed. Look at all of the things that you've done. Of course, this was meant to blow up in your face. And it's never one dimensional. Our sin, our failures, they are never one dimensional, meaning this. Often when we sin, when we uh, disobey God, we often think this will only affect me, though. I can contain this so that I'll take the blunt of I'll take the 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 blow of this sin. It'll only be mine. I'll bear it. I'll shoulder it. But Abraham's offense did not only affect Abraham's uh, Abraham or or Abraham's fellowship with God. It affected Abraham. It affected Abraham's uh, fellowship with God. But it also affected the one whom he was called to lay down his life for, his wife. The Bible says in verse 13, uh, it came about when God caused me to wander, he says, from my father's house. Do you see that there? When God caused me to wander from my father's house. That I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Sarah, you really want to show me that you love me? The way that you can show me that you love me, the way that you can show kindness to me is to sin for me. The way that you can show me that you love me. How many marriages have been ruined by a statement like that or even suggestions like that? Stay home from church today from man or wife. Don't go to church today. Stay home with me. Play hooky, as the sinners like to say. Let's play hooky from church. Let's not do family worship together tonight. Let's just watch a movie. What do they say now? Netflix and chill? Let's not pray today. Let's use, let's not use the money that we are committed to give to our church for our tithe. Let's go on vacation. Imagine how much money or how, how good of a vacation we could have if we held back Gave 10 bucks here and there. We don't want anybody to notice we're not giving anything. Disneyland is beautiful this time of year. From either side. And the list could go on and on and on. Called to protect her. He places her life in jeopardy. Called to love her. He manipulated her. And listen, brothers and sisters... This was not the first time. This was not the first time. Blinded by a lack of faith, Abraham could not even see what he was doing. This is astonishing. It is this man, the Bible tells as the man of faith, the one who has uh, showed exemplary faith in the biggest moments of life. Listen to this. Called to leave his home, he went. Called to trust in the promise of a seed and a nation, he believed. In the test of Lot, Called to trust that God would provide. He did. Later called to trust that, called to sacrifice his son. He obeys. In each of these critical tests of Abraham's life, he passes with flying colors. But in the one critical relationship of Abraham's life, he fails over and over and over again. In the one relationship, that was meant to be a vivid example of one who would lay down his life for his bride. Abraham would constantly fail. Constantly fail. Say you are my, my sister. I'll take uh, Hagar. Say you are my sister. The one relationship that Abraham was meant specifically to, to protect and to shield is the one that he constantly exposes to danger. This is the man of faith. And why? Why this relationship? 
Why not Lot? Why not Isaac? Uh, Why not the other relationships in his life? It is because our marriages are meant to be a tool of evangelism to our children, to the unbelieving world. And it is that relationship that Satan seeks to destroy because of its potential witness. Satan would love nothing more than to destroy your marriages, brothers and sisters. Satan would love nothing more than to have your children be exposed to the gospel and then see your marriage come to shambles so that that child will say, I do not believe because of what I've seen in my parents. And God forbid that that be the final word they hear about Christ and his gospel. In the sin of Abraham, he not only failed to be a witness to protect his wife, to display uh, to his wife that he would lay down his life for her, but he also failed to be a witness to the nation of Gerar, who'd never heard, we could imagine, of the gospel, who had never heard of the seed coming from a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And the one who is a prophet, the Bible says, the one who was called to carry on God's word is brought into this nation. And what is his example? What is his witness? He is a liar. Jacob will show much tendencies of his grandfather later, won't he? He's a swindler. Called to bless the nations, he becomes a curse to them. Called to be a prophet to speak God's word, he rather speaks lies and and deceit and gives a lame excuse for his sin. You may have heard of this phrase by Martin Luther. It's a Latin phrase coined by him. Simil ustus et peccator. What does that mean? It means that Luther was pointing to the fact that one can be a Christian. Justified by grace. And yet at the same time be one who sins. It is... Christian simultaneously justified and yet remaining one who sins. No Christian is free from a life of struggle against the indwelling sin, ongoing battle against sin and wrestling against sin. And if you believe that you can be a sinner and that you will for the rest of your life never ever sin, then you are deluded. Is it possible? Well, you have been given the freedom not to sin anymore, but you still live in a sinful fallen world. And yet there remains sin dwelling within you. By faith in Christ, we are set free from the burden and the guilt of sin. We are set free from the the overarching reign of sin in our lives, but we are not yet freed or delivered from ongoing, internal, persistent and powerful the persistent and powerful presence of sin, which we must fight every day. We will soon discover that the older we become in our walk of faith, that even the greatest of Christian men and Christian women sin and sometimes sin terribly. You will not meet a Christian and not recognize that every single one of them has an Achilles heel of sin that they need protection and defense from. All of them. Those who you love, those who you respect, those who even you listen to on your podcast or have great books of, meet them, spend some time with them, and you will soon discover they are just as sinful as you are. And oftentimes, as was in the case of Abraham, That Achilles heel, that spiritual weakness, that low point of life where uh, the pressure of sin seems to be able to break through most oftenly, most easily. Listen, is also coupled with extraordinary degrees of faith and holiness and courage. Did you hear that? Oftentimes when we see a man who is, yes, he is sinful, you'll also see contained within that, that same man someone who walks by faith. 
Someone who is, is holy in degrees. Someone who is a man of courage and yet is also a man who was a sinner. Righteous, justified, and yet also, also a sinner. And yet, again, Abraham is presented and falls before us with an embarrassing failure. And yet the scriptures hold this man out as an example of faith. He is the father of the faithful. And yet he is also a man of flesh and blood who fell into sin. And we may, and I hope that we don't sit back with our arms crossed and say, he should have known better. He should have known better. My brothers and sisters, he did know better. And he still sinned. You and I know better. And we still sin. Let us never say, you should have known better. We do know better. We are sinners. We are saints who sin. We know better. And we are wrestling still. We know better. We are fighting still. There is much that we who often fail can learn about God's dealing with Abraham and his failure of faith. It's not a story about failure. It's a story about God's faithfulness. And that's where the passage is intending to point us toward. Not the fact that, that we might fail. We know we will. At the end of the day, we're all failures. We are all failures at the end of the day. There is none among us that can hold our head up high and judge others because we would never do that. I would never do that. Right? It's only because of the faithfulness of God that you would never do that. Abraham's failure is to remind us that it is God who keeps us. It is God who keeps us. We, sh- we should never sit back at someone who sins and say, I would never do that. We must never say, I could never do that. Because better men than you, better women than you and me, have fallen and fallen into deeper and darker and more desperate sin. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let there, uh, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Listen, let him who thinks he is impervious to failure. Take heed lest you fall. Let him who thinks he has no need for correction. Take heed lest you fall. Let him who knows his theology well but does not even know his own heart. Take heed lest you fall. Wasn't that Peter's sin? What did Peter say? If they all deny you, I would never do that. They might all do this, but I would never do that. And he did do that. With curses, he did that. He did not even know the, the, the possibilities of his own heart. The darknesses of his own heart. The very thing he said he would never do is the very thing he did do. The very thing he thought he was incapable of doing was the very thing he did do. In this life, we never get beyond Romans 8.13. You know what 8.13 is? Romans 8.13. If we, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, we will live. It is a present continuous verse, meaning this every day of your life. Be about the business of killing sin. Every single day, be about the business of killing sin in your life. Uh, One theologian says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Here is God's friend. Imagine the friend of God with such intimacy and he sins like this. The even more astonishing thing, more than Abraham's repeated offense, is this. The sheer forgiveness and grace of God upon one who sins like this. You may be like Abraham. You may have foolishly walked into a sin that you thought you would never walk into again. 
May I say to you as we close this point. There is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. The final note in your life does not have to be your failure. The final note in your life can be the merciful grace of God upon all of your failures. I believe that is the point we need to see. But let's move on to our second one. Number two, God's preventing mercy. And this is the the rest of the chapter, verses 3 through 18. So Abraham's plan of deceit is carried out as he enters Gerar. Gerar would later again become the home of, of the Philistines. It would be Philistia, Philistia. The king of Gerar calls for Sarah and takes her into his harem to be his wife. Apparently, even pretty close, to we believe, to the age of 90, Sarah and her beauty is enough to even capture the king of Gerar. Now the Lord came to Abimelech in a dream as he was sleeping during the night. And the Lord has a message to Abimelech. And the message is direct, is it not? He says in verse 3, you are a dead man. Uh, the king of Gerar gets a, a vision of the Lord and the, the Lord simply says to him, you're dead. Anybody would like to have those kinds of dreams? Anybody had any of those kinds of dreams? My wife, uh, side note, she has these elaborate dreams. She, my wife's dreams could be movies. And how she remembers them, I have no idea. The Lord comes to, do you remember your, the Lord comes to, sorry, the Lord comes to the king and says, you are a dead man. Because the woman you have taken, she's married. And the Lord speaks to this, this king in the only way that the king at that time could understand. Why? Because the king had no, no knowledge, as it were, of this God who is the one true God. Abraham could not come to the king and say, let me take you to Genesis chapter 3 and share with you who this God is. So the Lord God comes to Abimelech. In the only way that Abimelech could understand in a dream. And Abraham or Abimelech responds in fear. But he also responds in defense. He says in verse number four. Now Abimelech had not come near her. He did not have intimacy with her that is right. Lord will you slay a nation. Even though blameless. Interesting that, that Abimelech is concerned for his nation. Abraham was not concerned for his wife. And yet Abimelech is concerned for his entire nation. Did he not say, he says, did he not say to me himself, she is my sister. And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my hands, I have done this or my heart, I've done this. Abimelech appeals to the justice of God. I was lied to. He took Sarah to be his wife, but he did, he did this in good conscience. I did not know. I didn't know I was taking another man's wife. I would not do this. And the Lord knows this. Verse 6, then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I have also, listen to this, I have also kept you from sinning against me. Slow down now. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So then the Lord God affirms his case. Yes, I know that you did this unknowingly, but the Lord also makes something very clear to Abimelech. Unbeknownst to Abimelech, God has restrained him from intimacy with Sarah. God's hand. God's restraining hand was upon Abimelech, keeping him from sinning against God and also keeping him from touching Sarah. Now, Abimelech may have been thinking his lack of intimacy was his sole choice. It was his own decision not to to be intimate with Sarah. But the Lord reveals there is more. For the Lord has kept him from touching her. The Lord has restrained Abimelech from touching her and having intimacy with her. Brothers and sisters, this was the restraining mercy 
of God. We think rightly about sovereign grace. We know that without sovereign grace, no one would be saved. But no less than sovereign grace is the restraining mercy of God. The Lord restrains evil men. We confess that man is totally depraved. But we deny that man is utterly depraved. Meaning this, we affirm that man is polluted by sin. But we deny that man is as sinful as he could be. Imagine that. We think about all of the heinous crimes that have been committed. All of the monstrous crimes that have been committed against humanity. I say to you, they could have been worse. Were it not for the restraining hand of God. You think about your own life. And how many times, how many times could it be that the Lord has kept us from going further than we wanted to go? From making not just a fool of ourselves, not just a fool of ourselves, but making absolute shipwreck of our lives. How many times has the Lord restrained us from not carrying out the random offenses that, that run through our minds? How many times have we been restrained from carrying out the things that we, and, and sometimes we are even shocked, aren't we? By some of the things that run through, how could I even think that? And were it not for the restraining mercy of God, the things that we think would be carried out. We need to praise God. The one who has kept us not just from making a fool of ourselves, but from absolutely destroying ourselves. And we think of those who have committed uh, serial murders, serial crimes. They could be worse. We think of the genocide committed upon humanity. It could be worse. There are sinners those who deny Christ, those who deny even the existence of God, whose finger is just one inch away from pushing a button. And how on earth are they restrained? Even though they deny God, it is God whose hand is upon their finger. They will not do a thing unless God permits it. Now that should give you great comfort, shouldn't it? That should give us great comfort. Do we have any real sense of the kindness of God who does not remove his hand from creation but holds back and restrains evil? Brothers and sisters, this is why you and why I must be praying every single day, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lead me not into temptation. And now, Though Abimelech slept, he is awakened by the Lord who threatens him with death. Him and all that are his if he does not return Sarah to Abraham. So the Bible says in verse 8, and maybe it's my sick and twisted mind that finds a little bit of humor in this next verse. So Abimelech rose early. You bet your britches he did. He rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things in their hearing. And what was the response of the men? They were frightened. They were frightened. Abimelech rose early. And it may be that Abimelech was awakened by this dream. And you know what it's like to be awakened by a dream. You may know what it's like to be awakened by a cold sweat in a dream. Some of you may even know what it's, be, what it's like to be awakened with tears in a dream. It is so real and you're awake And Abimelech has no other choice but to run to tell all of his servants exactly what the Lord has said. And what was their response? The men were greatly in fear. They were frightened. And what did Abraham say when he came into Gerar? He said, my fear was that you had no fear. And the men are showing when they hear of what God will do, they are terrified. There was more fear. In the men of Gerar, then there was fear in Abraham at that moment. And what did the king do? He calls Abraham and rebukes him. Again, a pagan king calling this righteous man to repent of his sins. And he says to it is almost like a parent. I can imagine myself speaking to my child. It is almost like a parent who is berating their child. 
Abimelech to Abraham. He said, what have you done? Parents, you've ever said that to your children? What did you just, what did you do? How have I sinned against you that you brought this sin upon me and my great kingdom? Haven't I been a good, some of us to our parents, our, our kids, aren't I a good parent to you? What are you doing? Right. You've done to me things that ought not to be done. This is a pagan king. And he says, what you've done, nobody should do what you've just done. And he goes further and he says in verse 10, what have you encountered? What did you see around here that you would do this? What did you see in Gerar that would make you think, I better do this because of what I see here? What's the matter with you? Nobody should do what you have done. You brought great trouble upon me, upon my kingdom. What did you see here that made you think this was this was the right way to go? And Abraham, if you can imagine, is just standing there. Like a child who's being scolded by their parent with their head down. And here he is again. I, I wonder if Abraham ever thought that he would be here again. After what had happened in Egypt. I wonder if what had happened in Egypt, if Abraham ever thought... That'll never happen again. And here he is again. The same sin. Almost like an instant replay from the first. Happening all over again. And his his response, it is childlike. It is weak. He says, I thought you didn't fear God. Uh, And she is kind of my sister. I mean, we're not from the same mother, but the same... And besides, it was our plan the whole time that when we go somewhere, hey, you're my sister. Okay, wait, wait, let me start all over again. A long time ago, I was in the land of earth. And it's almost like the king is just like, stop, stop, stop. And if you have your Bibles, you may see there's there's these quotations or these these uh, marks that are right after your passage. And it's meant to be a long pause, as if the king of Gerar is looking at Abraham just like, stop. Stop explaining. That, that's enough. Now, what does the king do? What does the king do in response to Abraham's sin and offense against him? He does something that could not be predicted unless you have a promise from God. He blesses him lavishly. Let's read it. Verse 14. You all are looking down at it. Verse 14. See those quotations, those marks at the end there? Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male servants, female servants, and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife to Sarah to him. Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. That's important. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids. And so that they bore children for the Lord had closed fast the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. He blesses him Uh, to buy a wife was 30 pieces of silver at that time. Abimelech gives Abraham a thousand and says to Sarah, you are vindicated before all of men, meaning your integrity is upheld. You've not been touched. Abraham, settle wherever you want in this land. All the things that God has promised are coming about. God said, land will be yours. The king says, take it. Nations will bless you. And here is that what's taking place. He's been giving servants and and his nation is now being grown. But there's something more, isn't there? It's an unexpected ending. And we would we would conclude it, it doesn't seem fair. It should be the other way around. It should be that Abimelech needs to pray for Abraham, not that Abim, not that Abraham prays for Abimelech. Uh, it should be the other way. It doesn't seem fair. And we also should ask, is God rewarding Abraham for his sin? 
Well, let's just answer those quickly. Is it fair? No. Not in the least. And that's the point. The Lord God is showing Abraham undeserved grace. That's the point. In our estimation, not fair that the creator would uh, give to Abraham in such a way after he has sinned. But look at your lives. How many sins have you and I committed? And yet still, we are recipients of the grace of God. And if we were to be honest with ourselves, it's not fair. And we don't deserve it. He has not given us a physical land. He's given us an eternal land. He's not given us a nation to call our own. He's adopted us as his sons and daughters to be a part of a holy nation blameless before God. He has not given us servants. We are called to serve. Do we deserve it? Not in the least. And let me also ask you this. Do we really want God to be fair? Would we really like for God to give us what we deserve? I think if we all knew the justice of God and ourselves, we would say no. Not for one second, no. The book of Exodus chapter 33 and the book of Romans chapter 8 both declare, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is God's sovereign choice and God's sovereign grace. There's another moment in Abraham's life that God is calling him to trust in the details. That even in those things that, that seem, again, uh, small and insignificant, that God is saying to Abraham, I'm with you. I'm with you. The Lord confirming to Abraham that which he had promised to be his God, that he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. God is saying, I'm keeping my promise. But there is one last thing before we close in this chapter that we must pay our pay attention to. Why did the Lord keep Abimelech from touching Sarah? Did you notice that there's a sickness that came upon the entire house of Abimelech? Abraham prayed for Abimelech. And, and what was that sickness? The Bible says that the Lord God had closed all of the wombs of the women in the house of Abimelech, meaning none of the women were able to have children. All of them were unable to bear children. During that time, Abraham was in Gerar. The Lord God closed the womb so that none could conceive. So then when Abraham foolishly gave his wife to the king, it would be clear to everyone that there was no one having babies at this time. Not wives, not concubines, not servant girls, so on and so forth. No one was having babies in that house. Why does that matter? How many days has it been since the Lord God has said, in one year, Sarah, you will have a baby. It's only been a few days, maybe a few weeks, possibly a month. But it has not been that long ago since the Lord God has said, in just a year, you will have a baby. Surely, he says in 18 to 10, I will return to you this time next year and you will have a son. What's the very first verse of chapter 21? Then the Lord God took note of Sarah as he had said and did for Sarah as he had promised. She conceived. How long does it take for a baby to go full nine months? The Lord God had promised that within a year, a son would come. And it would be this son who would ultimately give birth to the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. Satan would do all in his power to thwart the plans of God. Even take a pagan king like Abimelech. And cause him, deceive him to take this woman who would bear that seed into his house to attempt to destroy the seed that ultimately would be born. How so? If women in Abimelech's house were conceiving and having children, 
And Sarah, not too much longer, has a baby. After all of these years of not having a baby, what would be the overarching question about Isaac? Who's your daddy? And there was no Maury at the time to find out. Or whoever you all like to watch. Whose, whose child is this? Will be the, the question for the rest of Isaac's life. Who's your father? Is this truly Abimelech's seed? Or is, or is this truly Abraham's seed? Or is this the seed of the pagan king Abimelech? So the Lord God protects the genuineness of Abraham's son. God intervenes in this way, not just to protect uh, them, Abraham and Sarah, but because God has his eye focused on that promise that he will guard that seed. He will safeguard that seed. His promise will not fall to the ground. He is committed to that promise. What promise is that? He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis three fifteen. The Lord God will not allow anyone to have a baby in Abimelech's, la- in Abimelech's house so that when Sarah has a child, it will be beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is Abraham's seed because Abimelech's pe- house was having no children. Matter of fact, Abraham needed to pray for Abimelech so that that curse, that sickness could be removed from his household. The promise of a redeemer was being preserved. The promise of a rescuer was being preserved. The promise of one who would bless the nations was being preserved. And it would not be thwarted by Satan or some pagan king of the Philistines. God in the covenant said that he would cease to exist than to keep his covenant promise. If he did not keep his covenant promise, he would rather cease to exist. The Lord will keep his promise. And Abraham prays for Abimelech and for the nation. And we have one who prays for us. It is that seed. It is that seed who eventually did come. The one who has uh, come and who has crushed the serpent's head. The one who has fulfilled God's promise of Genesis 3.15. He is the one who now prays for us and for you. And now we also wait for another promise, don't we? For his return. That he will bring all things to completion. That, that we will reign with him in the new creation. That we will be freed once and for all from sin. And that the Lord God will be our God and that we will be his people. And that will be an eternal reality. Big promise, right? Listen. But in the meantime, now in the details of reaching the consummation, we await with hope, but we also trust God in our Sunday Lord's Day through Saturday to carry us, to guide and to direct our every step, whether that be at work or whether that be at home whether that be in our marriages or whether that be as we are trying to figure out the finances of our life, every step that you take, take in faith in the one who has promised that he will fulfill his promises and that he would rather cease to exist than see them fulfilled. Trust God in the details. Trust him with those baby infant steps. Confess the great things. Hold on to his unchanging hand in the small things. The failure of Abraham became the seed of God, the scene of God's promise. And it is preparing him for the greatest challenge that Abraham will ever face. And we will consider that in the next chapter. Next week, Lord willing. Brothers and sisters, can I say to you in closing? It may seem like the things that you encounter on a daily basis are insignificant, that they are minor, that they are even trivial. They are not. The way that you even speak to your husband, to your wife, the way even that you even correct your children, these are not small matters. They are all connected to the big grand picture. And God's big grand design for his people. Don't ignore the details. 
don't overlook the small things. I love when my wife reminds me, I appreciate the way that you provide for this family. It's a big thing. But there are smaller things like sitting down with me. Just having a normal conversation. And I often am running here and there trying to make sure all things are settled. When sometimes and more often than none, the more important thing is just sitting down and attending to the small things. God help us in those things. Hey, can I say to you this? You're hearing the gospel and you're hearing this preaching. This is not a small thing either. Or or this is not one of those things that you should overlook. It is a small thing, but it's not one of those small things that you should overlook as well. It's a big thing. When we sit and our attention is is diverted, when we sit and we have no concern, when we sit and think, uh, he's not as special as the other preacher I heard. (laughs) May God help you and me. Even with these so-called and seemingly small things, they are not small Even what I'm saying to you now, not small. Let's pray.